This is a re-recording of a sermon which Jared's laptop kindly ate for me when I first preached it. A reading from John chapter 8, 31 to 58. Jesus therefore said to those Jews that had believed him, If ye abide in my word, then are ye truly my disciples, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered unto him, We are Abraham's seed, and have as yet been slaves to no one. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Amen, amen, I say unto you, Every one that committeth sin is the slave of sin. And the slave abideth not in the house forever, the son abideth forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, yet ye seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, and ye also do the things which ye heard from your father. They answered and said unto him, Our father is Abraham. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not. Ye do the works of your father. They said unto him, We were not born of fornication, we have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me, for I came forth and am come from God. For neither have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father it is your will to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and standeth not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father thereof. But because I say the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I say truth, why do ye not believe me? He that is of God heareth the words of God. For this cause ye hear them not, because ye are not of God. The Jews answered and said unto him, Do we not well say that thou art a Samaritan and hast a demon? Jesus answered, A demon have I not, but I honour my father, and ye dishonour me. But I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Amen, amen, I say unto you, if a man keep my word, he shall never see death. The Jews said unto him, Now we know that thou hast a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets, and thou sayest, If a man keep my word, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Whom makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father that glorifieth me of whom ye say that he is your God, and ye have not known him. Now I know him, and if I should say, I know him not, I shall be like unto you, a liar. But I know him, and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and was glad. The Jews therefore said unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Amen, amen, I say unto you, Before Abraham came to be, I am. These are God's words. As we are working our way through the calling of God, or more accurately, the callings of God, we have arrived at the calling of fatherhood. Of course, we've already touched on many elements of this calling. Last week, for instance, we looked at rulership, which is fundamentally fatherly, for rulers are called to be fathers of their people on behalf of God the Father. I'm not going to repeat what I have already said in previous sermons, 
But I do think it's worth spending a little time looking at the idea of fatherhood itself, the theological concept of fatherhood, because understanding it well and drawing out its meaning is very helpful for forming that foundation that we need for a strong practical piety. If we as fathers are to be like God the Father, we must know what that means. What I'd like to do is start somewhere familiar, somewhere we've already spent a bit of time, and then move out from there and circle through what scripture tells us about fatherhood as a spiritual pattern, a heavenly archetype that human fathers participate in. And once we've done that, we'll conclude with what strikes me as scripture's chief practical application, what God says about how we are to participate in the spiritual pattern of his fatherhood, how we are to express it in our own lives, what we should be doing to be good fathers. So let's start where we have already been and think back several weeks to when we looked at God's calling for individual households. Do you remember how we talked about what your name stands for? What will the name of tenant stand for, for instance? At the time, we were thinking about how to answer that question, so we didn't stop to analyze the way that we were asking it. But I think it is fruitful to do that now. Why do we talk this way in terms of our name? And more importantly, why does scripture talk this way? Why speak in terms of names? Why do we even have names? What is a name? Names are of great importance in Scripture. As you know, we believe here at Redwood that the name of God, Yahweh, ought to be remembered, not turned into the title Lord. And I'm sure I don't need to tell you that God renames Abraham to Abraham and Jacob to Israel. These are very significant events which mark new beginnings or new births for these men. The same thing happens to Cephas in the New Testament, Peter. When we get to the New Testament, we see the same importance placed on names. And especially, just as in the Old Testament, especially on the name of God. Jesus tells us, for instance, that he works in his father's name, John 10.25. He is, in other words, a representative of his father. His ministry is not his own ministry, but his father's ministry. He is doing it in his father's name. And we understand intuitively what this means because we speak this way in English. But Jesus goes further than we do in modern English. He doesn't just talk about representing his father's name. He also talks about manifesting his father's name. John 17, 6, I manifested thy name unto the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. And again in verse 26, I made known unto them thy name, and will make it known, that the love wherewith thou lovest me may be in them, and I in them. <clears throat> this is not so intuitive and obvious to us, this actually sounds pretty strange, because to us, a name is just like a linguistic token or a metaphor. It's a figure of speech to represent a person. So what does it mean that Jesus has manifested, has made known, revealed, in other words, his father's name? He is saying that he has shown the father's name to his disciples. But how do you show a name? He's obviously not just talking about some letters put together in a certain order. He's speaking very concretely, in a way that doesn't really mesh with understanding God's name as we do in English, as just a sort of figure of speech. 
But in doing this, Jesus is actually following the Old Testament. That probably comes as no surprise. God himself speaks this way to Moses, for example. When the Israelites are about to come out of Egypt, he says, Behold, I send an angel before thee, to keep thee by the way, and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Take ye heed before him, and hearken unto his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. That's Exodus 23, 20 and 21. My name is in him, God says. And clearly, this is more than a figure of speech. God here is speaking very much like Jesus speaks, as if his name is synonymous with his essence or his identity. My name is in him means my essence is in him. I am in him. The name of God participates in the reality of who God is in such a way that it is identified with God himself. This is perhaps even clearer in the way that God speaks of the temple. In Deuteronomy 12, 5, for instance, he speaks of the place which Yahweh your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there as his habitation. The name of God dwells in the temple as his habitation, his house. And we know what that looks like. It looks like the same glory cloud that led Israel in the wilderness, the pillar of cloud that surrounded the angel of whom God told Moses, my name is in him. In other words, God's name is the angel of Yahweh, who is also often called the word of Yahweh, who John tells us was in the beginning with God and was God. And Jesus tells us has manifested God's name. I hope this is, if not familiar, at least unsurprising to you. We know from John also that Jesus is the true temple, the place where God's name dwells. Hence he says, I and the Father are one, John 10.30. But we also know that there is a critical sense in which Jesus and the Father are not one. This is quite important to understanding the full biblical view of the name of God, and by extension, our own names. We know that Jesus and the Father are one, the word was God, but we also know that Jesus and the Father are distinct, the word was with God. The Father's name is in Jesus, so that when you look at Jesus, you are seeing the Father. Think of what he says to Philip in John 14, "'Have I been so long time with you, and dost thou not know me, Philip?' He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? And yet for this to be true, Jesus also has to be separate from the Father. He has to be begotten by God. Again, hopefully this is unsurprising. This is just Trinitarian theology. I say just, but this is Trinitarian theology. In the language of Nicaea, we might say that the Father's name proceeds from him into the Son, whom he eternally begets. The name of God is who he is, his essence, his identity, and it extends out from the Father and into the Son. Now, it's easy to think, well, this has nothing to do with us because we are human beings, not God. We do not have three persons in one essence. We don't have a name that proceeds out from us into someone else. But we do. If my son were to go to the army, for instance, what would his drill sergeant call him? Tenant. That is the name that proceeds from me, his father, to him. The same name that his mother participates in also, the name that she took or was taken into when she married me. Our image is reproduced in our children who take our name and share in our identity. 
They are our legacy, what we give of ourselves to the future, the identity, the name that we leave behind. Now notice that this movement of identity through time works backward as well as forward. I didn't create my own name. I didn't reach the age of 21 without a surname and then decide, hmm, I feel like a tenant. I didn't make up my identity from scratch. It is something that was conferred on me from my father and from his father before that. And when you keep following that line back, where do you end up? Well, scripture tells us explicitly where we end up. Here is an example from the genealogy of Jesus. And let's pick it up from Noah, since it would be tedious to read the whole thing and see where it takes us. Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's Luke 3, 34 to 38. We think of the lion in our minds, we think of the lion stopping at Father Adam, because Father Adam is where all human beings come from. But Father Adam was a son too. He was the son of God. Hence, Paul tells us, for this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father, from whom every patria in heaven and on earth is named. That's Ephesians three fourteen to 15. Now, what is patria? It can be translated fatherhood, or can be translated as family, and Bibles will do both. It refers to your lineage, your ancestry, your race, or your tribe. So it is both fatherhood and family. It is your people, as they come from a common head. It is the body that gives you identity, and all patria derives from God. The fatherhood of God is the unifying principle for every family. The headship of God is the unifying principle for every body. It's fatherhood all the way up. Again, I think this will be fairly unsurprising. You guys probably get this pretty intuitively at this point. This is just the cosmic mountain again. Everything flows down from God. It's a fractal pattern. Fathers all the way down, originating in the great father of glory, the father of lights. One God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, 6. So Adam was the son of God, which is another way of saying Adam was made in the image of God. Sonship and image in scripture are essentially synonymous. Look at Genesis 5, 3, for instance. Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image, and called his name Seth. And we know that in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, who is the exact image of his substance. Hebrews 1.3 We are so accustomed to this language that we entirely take it for granted, but why does scripture speak this way? Why speak of sons as images of their fathers? Why link sonship and image like that? Well, let me ask a related question. Why do your children look like you? The modern answer is because of genes. But in fact, as far as I understand it, genes only code for proteins. They don't code for what an organism looks like. Modern science really has no idea why babies look like their parents. Scientists can say why babies have blue eyes, or why certain diseases get passed on from their parents, but they can't tell you why a baby's face looks like his parents' faces, or even why the genes that decide that his eyes will be blue only get used in the cells of his eyes. Every cell contains the same DNA, 
Yet somehow our bodies organize themselves in such a way that the DNA is used to produce all kinds of different cells in exactly the right arrangements and exactly the right places to fit together into a fearfully and wonderfully made human being that looks like its parents. And we don't need to get sidetracked on the failings of the Enlightenment right now, but the point I want to draw your attention to is simply that babies look like their parents. This is utterly commonplace, so we take it for granted. But if we stop and ask why, it is rather a profound thing. Why did God create us this way? Why did he design human biology so that our appearance would have something to do with the appearance of our parents? I suppose you can guess the answer has something to do with the fact that our physical bodies express spiritual realities. Babies look like their parents because babies participate in the name of their parents, in the identity of their parents, in the essence of their parents. They are spiritually alike, and so they look physically alike. We are made in our parents' likenesses, in the likeness of the one flesh body of which our fathers are the heads. This understanding that we are like our fathers gets us to what Jesus says in our passage today. Look again especially at verses 44 to 47. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father it is your will to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and standeth not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, that is, out of his own nature. For he is a liar, and the father thereof, the father thereof. But because I say the truth, ye believe me not. Which of ye convicteth me of sin? If I say truth, why do ye not believe me? He that is of God heareth the words of God. For this cause ye hear them not, because ye are not of God. Jesus is very explicitly here, linking being of God, that is being begotten by God, being his sons, with being like God in what we do. Those who are like God, begotten by God, hear the words of God and believe the truth because God is truth and they are like God. But conversely, it is easy to tell then who is not begotten of God by looking at whether they are unlike God in this way. And it's equally easy to tell whose sons they are who their father is, by asking who they are like. If they are liars, then who is the original liar, and thus the father of lies? It is the devil. What this passage teaches us is that fatherhood is complicated by the fall. Before the fall, man was made in God's image as his son, and that was the only image and the only father that he had. But when Adam was tempted by the father of murder and lies into acting in his likeness by letting his wife eat the fruit that he knew would kill her and acting falsely against her and God, letting her believe the lie that she would not surely die, when Adam did this, he did not act as God's son, but as Satan's. He made himself into a son of the devil. He took the servant as his father functionally. And by putting himself under the devil, he put all of his descendants under the devil. If we're all made in Adam's likeness, and Adam chose to become like a murderer and a liar, then we are all made in the likeness of murderers and liars. That is our natural state. And God has to remake us in his image. He has to conform us to his likeness again, if we are to be like him. 
This is why John uses the language of being born again, and why he speaks of God giving us new names in Revelation. God adopts us as sons, but to be his sons, we must be like him, and so he must make us like him. John 1, 12 to 13 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to them that believe on his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To be physically descended from Adam is to be born of blood, of the flesh, of man. It means to be spiritually descended from Adam. The Jews in our passage thought that they were in great spiritual shape because they were descended from Abraham, who was in great spiritual shape. But Abraham was also descended from Adam. And the spiritual state that he inherited from Adam was just like everyone else's. His father was an idolater at Babel. The spiritual state that he was known for, the faith in God that made him the father of many nations, was a spiritual state contrary to his nature in Adam. A spiritual state despite Adam's spiritual state, a spiritual state given to him by the free gift of God's grace, it was not a state that he passed on naturally. He passed on the same sin nature that he received from Adam. And the Jews should have known this. Paul, a Jew, writes, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we before laid to the charge both of Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. Romans 3, 9-11 Does this mean that physical descent is of no benefit? That the Jews should not have even considered the fact that they had Abraham as their father? Not at all. What advantage then hath a Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much every way. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Romans 3, 1 to 2. This brings us to the responsibility that God places on us as fathers. I want to make one more connection here. Look at 2 Samuel 7, in which God is speaking to David through Nathan. He says, Moreover, Yahweh telleth thee that Yahweh will make thee a house. When When thy days are fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, that shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thy house and thy kingdom shall be made sure forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Now compare this to Solomon's reflections in Proverbs, and consider that proverb we all know well, Proverbs 13.22, a good man leaves an inheritance to the sons of his sons. Here's the connection. How did Solomon know this? You could say... It's just natural wisdom. Everyone reflecting on the nature of family and fatherhood and seeing the outcome of different people's ways of life would be able to discern this. And that is true. But I don't think that is the primary way in which Solomon discerned this. I think it is much more obvious than that. Solomon was the son of David. And he knew that God was his father because God explicitly said so. 
And he knew that God was good, indeed, that he was the perfect father. And he knew that God had laid up an inheritance not just for him, but for his sons. Just the second psalm in his father's songbook is all about this. Yahweh said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Solomon knew that this inheritance was laid up for generations. Peter speaks of prophets like him, saying that it was revealed to them that they were not ministering these things unto themselves, but unto us. That's 1 Peter 1.12. Solomon knew that these things would be fulfilled through the coming greater son of David, in whom all the saints of God would share in his inheritance. Romans 8.15-17 says, For ye received not the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but ye received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. It was, I would argue, that in reflecting on these facts, Solomon discerned that a good man lays up an inheritance to his son's sons. Because a good man, a good father, is like God the Father. Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I don't want to overly spiritualize this verse, this proverb. It absolutely includes material inheritance. But that is because the physical images the spiritual. The first and most important inheritance that we can offer our children is the gospel. When Peter preaches that gospel for the first time in Acts, he tells his audience, the promise is for you and for your children. What advantage has the Christian? Or of what profit is baptism? Much in every way. For first of all, we are entrusted with the oracles of God, who commands us to pass them on to our children. These words which I command thee this day shall be upon thy heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy sons. And shall talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be for frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thy house, and upon thy gates. Deuteronomy 6, 6-9. This is a total, all-of-life communication of God's words and enculturation into his laws. They must be in our hearts, for out of the heart the mouth speaks. We should be talking about God's words when we get up, when we're eating together, when we're traveling, when we're going to bed, when we're working. That's the sign on the hand, the working. When we're planning, that's the frontlets between the eyes. When we're building our household, while we're showing hospitality. When we're making our laws, electing our leaders, that's the gates. In other words, all the time. And we talk about them specifically to teach them diligently to our sons. Let me add in passing, this doesn't mean that we don't teach them to our daughters. Rather, God makes this command knowing that those sons will themselves become fathers who must continue that tradition. He entrusts this to the fathers, to the sons after them, to their sons after them, and so on. And hence, Paul tells us to nurture our children in the discipling and instruction of the Lord. You notice this is specifically a command to fathers. It is not the job of your wife 
to teach your children. I don't mean that mothers shouldn't be involved in homeschooling, but it is the job of fathers to teach their children the oracles of God. And not just the job of fathers, the great privilege of fathers, the great blessing, the great gift. God gives us this special honour that we, bumbling, foolish, slow-witted sinners, are allowed to teach his words to our children so that we may pass on an eternal inheritance of glory to them. It's easy to get discouraged about the state of the world when we think about what we will leave to our kids. We are none of us very wealthy. We don't own much land. What we do own, we actually only rent from the government through rates anyway. We hear of all the crazy injustices going on with huge megacorps buying up housing and land, and it's easy to think, what are our children going to get? How can we leave them anything worth having? I want to leave my kids productive land that can become a multi-generational household. I think we probably all do, but it doesn't seem very likely that we'll be able to. Now, I'm not saying that we should despair of those plans. New Zealand belongs to Christ, not to Blackrock or Klaus Schwab, and he can give it to our children if he wants to. But that actually is my point. When we think about the inheritance that we leave to our children, about the family business we are involving them in, so to speak, we should not be thinking first of physical assets. That is not how scripture speaks. We should be thinking first of the most valuable inheritance we can pass on. The inheritance that is worth more than gold, even gold refined seven times. The inheritance that is more precious than jewels. The inheritance that is laid up in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. Seek that inheritance first and the rest will be added to us because that inheritance is found in the Lord Jesus Christ to whom belongs the lands of New Zealand that we hope to have a small part of. He will bless us with them, if he wills. But he has promised to bless us with a far greater inheritance, and he has told us that this promise is not just for us, but for our children. And he has told us how we are to pass it on to them through enculturating them into his word. How can you start to do this? How can you develop a better habit of both teaching God's words diligently and talking about them continually? I certainly cannot claim perfection in this, but I can tell you what I have found helpful for establishing and strengthening such routines, and it comes down to a single settled custom that I think is common to pretty much all Reformation culture, and that is family worship. I know this is on all of your radars already, so I'm not going to labor the point. I want to simply close by reminding you of the importance of family worship and encouraging you in this discipline. We have a priceless inheritance, which we are commanded to pass on to our children. God must give the increase, of course. God must make the seed grow into a harvest in the fields of their hearts. But he does so through the work that we do in family worship of sowing that seed and of watering it. It can be difficult, but it doesn't need to be complicated. So let me briefly summarize how we do it in our house. Firstly, we have a very simple call to worship that most people would probably recognize. The Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to offer thanks and praise. Then we sing a hymn and each person gets a day to choose a hymn and no complaining is allowed. Then I lead us in prayer focusing especially on things to be thankful for, things that we need help with, 
and people who need God's help. And when I finished, I asked God to hear the prayer of one of the children, whoever's day it is, who chose the hymn. And then we read a relatively short part of scripture, continuing on from the day before, except on Mondays when we recap the sermon so that I can make sure that they actually understood everything. And at the moment, we're going through Luke's gospel. So what I'll do is I'll read a natural section, something that's usually just long enough that it's complete in itself. And then I'll ask the children to summarize it in their own words, starting at the beginning and going in order of the text, following it closely and guiding them to see important doctrines or important connections, especially asking things like, what other part of scripture does this remind you of? Or why does this matter to us? We do this at the beginning of the day, after breakfast, so it is essentially the first lesson of the day, and the rest of homeschooling flows from this, and that's that's all we do. We do the, the hymn, the prayer, scripture reading, and discussion. It doesn't have to be at the beginning of the day, obviously. Um, most people will probably find it quite hard to do at the beginning of the day. The important thing is not when, but whether. It is consistency. Find a time that you can do pretty much every day, and just get into the habit. Even if your kids are very young, get into the habit so they never know anything else. It's just normal routine to them. Even if they're babies, do it with your wife while your babies are with you. God blesses babies too. The Holy Spirit works in hearts that cannot talk as well as hearts that can. Family worship sets a regular pattern of being in God's word, of treating it as foundational to daily life. It makes the word of God familiar It keeps the word of God top of mind so that it more naturally comes up again as we navigate the challenges of each day. It allows us to create hooks to hang conversations on later, treating God's speech as the central pillar or the trunk of the tree might be a better analogy that all of our own speech should be attached to even if we're often out in the twigs and the leaves. It gives us opportunity to take counsel on the day with God himself praying about what is going to happen or what has happened. It teaches us reliance on God and lets us as fathers model how not to be anxious, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to make our requests known unto God. It establishes a culture of gratitude by doing this, by giving to God thanks and praise for his many blessings every day. It teaches our children the valuable skill, the truly unique ability in this lost world to speak to God and have confidence that he hears them and to hear from God and have confidence that they understand him. All of these things are unfathomable mercies and a priceless inheritance that we must not squander. We must carefully guard and preserve what God has given to us so that we may teach our children to receive it and value it as we do. Whatever our own personal names stand for, they have been gathered up into the name of Christ. I am no longer just non-tenant. I am non-tenant Christ. I have reappropriated the feminist double-barreled surname. I have gathered that up into Christ. It has been redeemed. Every Christian has a double-barreled surname, and every Christian, the last name in his surname is Christ. This is name that we must pass on to our children. This is our job as underfathers of our great father in heaven.